A long time ago, in what seems like a Sunday school class, maybe a galaxy far, far away, uh, we were talking about this amazing letter in the New Testament known as Philippians. Uh, It's a letter of joy, an epistle of joy that unfolds for us. I would say the secret of joy. It's not a secret to those that that know Christ and, and know his word well. Uh, but it is something, I, I, it seems like the last month I've had at least a dozens of conversation, conversations with people that are, spe- that are seeking joy in all the wrong places. Um, they put their hope in things that cannot and will not satisfy them. And then they are devastated when whatever that, issue, whatever that thing is that they're, they're looking to for joy in their life, when that falls apart. Uh, this this letter unfolds for us what real joy is and where it is found and the type of joy that does not fail in the midst of any circumstance. We are in a section of Philippians that is really um, holy ground, if, if you want to think of it like that, because what has happened as we have talked about this in, in weeks past, and we'll, we'll review and bring you up to speed, but just, just a little... A little bit of a context lesson here. Uh, God is going to pull back the curtain of some of the theological mechanics of what makes him God and, and how, how Jesus can be both 100% God and 100% man at the same time and why he had to do that. And he's going to allow us to see a little bit behind the theological curtain uh, as we marvel at the wonder of who God is, what he's like, what he's done. And, and the amazing part of it is... The motivation behind God becoming a man was to save you and me from our sins. And that's why he did it. So, without further ado here, um, where have we been over the last, at least the last couple of weeks uh, when I was teaching? appreciate uh, Jack and Lee uh, and uh, the others that have filled in, uh, David Gibson, um, Let's just kind of remember where we've been, and that will bring us up to speed in Philippians chapter 2 today. Um, we looked at several scriptures. Uh, the first one that we looked at, and this is where we'll start today, just by way of review in your notes there, is Philippians chapter 2. And this is the section that we're looking at, and Lord willing, we'll uh, get through, at least in part, this morning. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, Philippians chapter 2, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Um, those verses unpack what, what theologians and commentators like to call the kenosis passage. Kenosis is, um, if you take a word in Greek and you give it English letters, you get kenosis, and that's the word you'll see there in verse uh, 7, emptied. Do you see that word there? Emptied. That's the word kenosis in Greek. Um, and they call that the kenosis passage because... Uh, obviously, this is a significant theological passage that talks about Jesus becoming uh, a man without giving up his his deity or his godhood. 
Um, so that's kind of that, that's kind of where we've pulled the car over, and we've said we, we need to stop and talk about what is going on here theologically. And along the way, we've looked at some other texts. So I'm just going to briefly run through these other texts just to kind of prime the pump and, and set the table for coming back to Philippians, because I know it's been well over a month since we've talked about these things. So hold your place in Philippians and turn back to John chapter one. Very familiar uh, section of scripture here. Um, and I'm basically just going to read these texts and, and give a little bit of comment along the way, but hopefully uh, what we've talked about in the past will come back to you as we read. Uh, you guys know these verses uh, in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So you have Jesus, who in the beginning is God. Okay, he's he's with God and he was God. And and what what John is doing is he's making a distinction. He's with God, meaning he's with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but he also was God as well. He is God. He is 100% deity as the other two persons, the Father and the Spirit, are in the Trinity. And long before the world began, in the beginning, God was already there. The Word was there. God was already there. He was in the beginning, verse 2, with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And Colossians 1 tells us this too. We don't think about it, but when you read Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, who was doing the creating? I remember as a kid, I've always, I always thought it was God the Father. And then I read Colossians one day. It was Jesus. It was the second person of the Trinity speaking everything into existence in Genesis chapter 1. Um, and that's what it says here. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 4, in him was life. Talking about spiritual life. And the life was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You remember that, right? He came, and, and he, here I am, here's the Messiah, and people are going, what? Is this another, you know, rent a Messiah, rent a deity? What, what is this person that came up? But most people rejected him. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. You guys remember that? That's not John, the guy that's writing here. That's John the Baptist. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. Now there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He goes on to say he came to his own, talking about the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. You remember the scene in the Gospels where Jesus approaches Jerusalem and he looks down at the city and what does he do? He weeps. The Son of God crying? Why? Because he came to his own, and his own, no, his own did not receive him. They rejected him. Ultimately, the Jews, as a corporate entity, rejected him. Yes, there were a few that did believe and follow him, and we read about those in Scripture. But, but as, a, as a nation, they rejected him. Verse 12, but as many as had received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
And then we hit this most profound verse. And the word... And the Word, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, so the Word becomes flesh. Jesus, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, takes on, and think of it like this. Can't see that very well. Let's pick a different color here. Jesus is 100% deity. He's 100% God. But what this text is telling us is he became flesh. He took on flesh. He took on humanity. So that now you have Jesus, this is still Jesus, right? Here he is. But now he is 100% human. Also, 100% God, 100% man, at the same time, in the same person. Okay? That's, what this, that's what this whole thing is about. Uh, call it the incarnation, call it the kenosis. Remember the, remember the $100 theological word I taught you, the hypostatic union, remember that? Okay, They all are basically getting at the same thing, that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, at the same time, in the same person. Okay, John continues here, verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace." For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. Just a footnote on that. Remember Exodus 34, Exodus 33? Moses cries out, show me your glory. You can't do that because you'll die. You can't see. He, he says in that text, no, no, one, no one can see my face and live. That's where, you remember the plan, where God takes Moses and hides him in the cleft of the rock and he puts his hand over the hole in the cleft so he can't see God as he passes before him. And, and right at the last sentence, uh, uh, second as God is exiting the stage, God removes his hand and lets Moses see the afterglow of his glory. It was just 4th of July, uh, about, about a month ago, right? 4th of July, and big fireworks display. You ever watch fireworks? Right? And then, and, then, and then, you know, the fun part of it's done, and it just sits there, and you see those little embers glowing, right? And then they disappear. It was like Moses got to see the glowing embers of God's glory for a few seconds before he was gone. But he could not see his face and live. No one can see the face of God and live. That's what he says here. No, no man has seen God at any time because he's too holy and we're unholy. And But watch this. But the only begotten God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, or we can think he is near the Father, he is close, closely connected to the Father, he, Jesus, has explained him, the Father. So, 
one of the reasons for the incarnation, one of the reasons for the kenosis, one of the reasons for the hypostatic union is that Jesus, in becoming a man without ceasing to be God, allows us to know God, you ready? In a way that humanity has never known him. People actually saw God. They ate with God. They talked with God. They walked with God. They, they watched him work. They wa- watched him minister. They watched him sleep. They, right? Because in Jesus, we see God in a way that we have never seen him in history. He, Jesus is the culmination of revelation. See, the, even the, the psalm we read this morning is alluding to there is coming a day when this Messiah is going to come and he is going to explain God in a way that even the prophets could not do. Why couldn't they do it? Because they weren't God. And here comes Jesus, God in human flesh. What does the Christmas song say? Uh, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead. Oh, come on, guys. Hark the herald angels. Right? (laughs) Veiled in flesh. You say it's July, right? It's 90 some odd degrees outside. It's like 68 this morning, though, right? So so we could ease into Christmas, maybe, sort of. Um, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See... Because we see him, right? Go back, look it up, look it up in your hymnal, it's there. Okay? So, so what this is talking about is Jesus coming to earth, becoming the great God-man in order to save people from their sins. And John's point is that in Jesus, we get to see and experience God at a level that we had not experienced before. That word explained means to tell or report or describe. Jesus explains the Father. Now turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 as we review here. Is this coming back to you? Are you with me? Colossians chapter 1, and we'll start this in verse uh, 13 here. Uh, Again, a very similar start as the Gospel of John. Uh, Paul begins to unfold his letter to the little church in Colossians, in Colossae, the Colossian Christians there. And uh, very similar uh, to the themes that John talks about. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And, and, And do you hear it there? Does it sound like John? He's the image of the invisible God. You say, well, how do we see God? He's invisible. He's spirit. Remember John 4? God is spirit, right? He doesn't have a body. You can't go, oh, there's God, or there's God. But when God took on human flesh, now we can see what he's like with our eyes, and we can hear him with our ears. He is the image of the invisible God, the uh, and the, um, the representation, the... Um, uh, literally, uh, the word means a living image. Uh, the firstborn of all creation, that doesn't mean he was actually born, for we know Jesus has always existed. What that means is he has a preeminent position over creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. There it is, that Jesus was... Uh, really the the one speaking things into creation back in the creation week. 
Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only did he make everything, he keeps everything running. He sustains his creation. Verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, meaning he was the first one to rise from the dead, representing humanity, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. And then we hit this most amazing verse. For it was the Father's good pleasure... For all the fullness to dwell in him. And by context, what Paul is talking about is all the fullness of deity. This was not just a superhuman. This was not just uh, a man who came who was the Lord of creation uh, by virtue of his characteristics or position This is God in human flesh, and it was God's joy to know the Son as 100% deity, as 100% God, the second person of the Trinity in that. We have one more text to look at. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 as we just kind of uh, review and set the table for Philippians here. Hebrews chapter 1, another wonderful section of Scripture. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Do you hear the culmination there? In the past, in the Old Testament, God spoke through all sorts of ways. Prophets, miracles, signs and wonders, uh, visions, dreams, right? All those different forms of revelation. But all of those converge in the Gospels. They converge in the coming of the Son of God. I mean, you know, when the author steps out on the stage, the play is over, right? Because there he is. And all of these forms of revelation were pointing to and preparing us for and leading up to God coming in human flesh. He, he, he is the pinnacle of revelation. That, that's why we don't wait for God to give additional revelation. Once Jesus comes, that's it. Because he was the point of it all. So God spoke in many portions in many ways. Verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us. And, and really the emphasis of the text is he's spoken to us once and for all, or finally, in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Notice all three of the authors, John and Paul and the author of Hebrews, have noted that Jesus was the creator. Interesting. Verse 3, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. The radiance of his glory literally means the, the brightness the reflection of his glory. That if, if you could imagine, well, maybe you've done this before. Maybe you're, you're driving down the road, and it's real early in the morning, or it's around sunset, and you look up in your rear view mirror, and you're met with blinding light. Because the sun just happened to be lined up with your mirror. Jesus is the exact representation of that glory. He is a perfect reflection of the radiance that emanates from the Father. 
we see, remember, remember what John said? We have beheld his glory, right? We, we've seen the glory of God in Jesus. And the writer to Hebrews tells us even more. He is the radiance of his glory. He is the, the uh, display, and, and I, I just get caught up in, in the language here, but it, it, he's the brightness, he's the display, he's the radiance. And furthermore, the writer tells us, look back at the text there, he is the exact representation of his nature. He is, according to the writer of Hebrews, deity. He is of the same nature, the same substance. In fact, this is, this is where we get the word hypostatic. It means nature or essence. Jesus is of the same essence or the same substance or the same being as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He's made out of the same stuff, even though we know God doesn't have stuff in him. You know what I mean, right? Same nature. Okay, and the exact representation of his nature. And I love this. How does the world run every day? Answer, end of verse 3. Because he upholds everything by the word of his power. I don't know if you picture God as sitting on his celestial lounge chair, looking down and watching all that he made just continue to carry on in some sort of, you know, we wound up the clock and now we let it run kind of thing. But that is not the picture of the God of Scripture. He not only makes it, everything in the universe, but he actively sustains it. And this verse tells us he sustains it by his word. So I don't know how you picture this, but I would think of heaven of being a place where you're hearing the voice of God all the time as he runs his universe. That's pretty cool. That's not why we're here, but that's pretty cool. Okay, so all that leading up to what we talked about last time, that the hypostatic union is the union of Christ's divinity with humanity in one person. That's what this diagram represents. And we talked about the Council of uh, Chalcedon in 451 where they are our forefathers, the, the early fathers of the church, drafted a um, statement on this. Uh, this has defined orthodoxy since the 5th century. And uh, if, you are a believe, or if you are a Christian today, I, I, I'm, other than the cults, all Christians affirm this. Okay, and so if, if you want that, it's not in your notes. If you want that, I can send it to you. Uh, an explanation by Paul Enns. And we talked about some implications of the hypostatic union. Let's just remind you of these as we jump into Philippians 2. By this union, the divine nature, as channeled through the kenosis, imparts its power and values to Christ's human nature. Okay? By this union, certain human experiences are made possible because Jesus is the God-man. Um, Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in all things as we are. Right? But James 1 says God cannot be tempted by evil. So how did, how did Jesus experience temptation? Because he was 100% human. And humans are subject to temptation. And yet Hebrews tells us he's, he was tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Okay, so, so why? The, the author goes on saying, so that we have a sympathetic high priest. We can go to Jesus and say, I'm being tempted with something really hard here. Will you help me? And you know what he says? Yeah, I know what that's like. 
Let me help you. Okay. So the, the kenosis allows for Jesus to experience all of what it means to be human minus sin. So that he is able to come to our rescue. So that he is able to stand in our place. So that he is able to be our substitute. Thirdly, by this union, it's possible for one person to be the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. This union is permanent and everlasting. This is amazing. In heaven, Jesus will still look human because he will forever be the God-man. When he went back to heaven, he didn't doff his body. He didn't go back to just being the Word that was with God and was God, but not 100% human. We know from Revelation and Zechariah that even the nail marks from the crucifixion will be evident in eternity. Which means, obviously, he still has a body. And finally, the union implies both impeccability, meaning Jesus could not sin because God can't sin, right? He can't do that. But real testing. He can't sin because he's 100% deity, but he can experience real testing and real temptation because he really is human. And that is the wonder and mystery and yet necessity of the Messiah being our substitute. Now, turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. I didn't think it was going to take two months to get to this text. Let's look back at our text here. Okay, so what does all that mean? First of all, we need to remember the context. Look at Philippians chapter 2 because it's been so long. We, we've been plummeting the depths of, of theological uh, significance and joy in the incarnation here, and we don't need to forget the context. Okay, Look up for a second. What is the most important determiner of meaning in interpreting the Bible? What is it? Context which means when we take verses out of context, we are more prone to misinterpret them. Okay? So let's remind ourselves of the context, because this is a section we definitely don't want to misinterpret. You know what I'm saying? If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. There it is. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And believe it or not, here is the context of the kenosis. You ready? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the context. You ready for this? Paul doesn't say, hey, Philippians, I'm going to give you the most deep, significant, behind-the-curtain look at how Jesus became a man without be, ceasing to be God, and he's both in one person. And, and that's not, that, that wasn't his point. He didn't sit down to unfold some great theological treatise on the kenosis and incarnation. That was not his point. His point, you ready, was to talk about selfishness and humility and how we ought to be treating one another because of our Savior. Okay? So keep that in mind. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, so this is like a kindergarten sort of cubby lesson point here, but you ready? 
we should have the same attitude as Jesus. Say it with me, class. We should have the same attitude as Jesus. We should be like Jesus. That's his point. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important as himself. And do not look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude which was also in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what attitude is that? Here we go. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. The supreme demonstration of Christ's humility. That's what this is all about. This, this, this is all about humility. This is about not walking around like you're God's gift to something, but considering others as more important than yourself. That's what this is about. What's the supreme demonstration of Christ's humility? It was the kenosis. It it was him becoming a man. Follow me on this. Follow Paul's logic. Though he existed in the form of God, uh, all that means is Jesus is God. Okay? Any questions? Good. All right. Number two. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, now listen very carefully, okay? Because I have to say this in a way that maintains orthodoxy. And if I missay something, I might be a heretic. And I don't want to be a heretic, okay? Follow me. What does that mean? It means Jesus was willing to give up his equality with God. That's what it means. It says, he did, Jesus, he did not regard equality with God, because he really is equal to God. He is. He's God. But he didn't regard that equality as a thing to be grasped, meaning he was willing not to just hang on to it. He was willing to let go of it. Now, now here's the line between orthodoxy and heresy. So, so listen very carefully, okay? In what aspect or what part of his equality with God was he willing to give up? And I'm just going to say it right here because I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. He was not saying he was willing to give up his deity. He was not saying he was willing to give up any divine attributes. He was not saying he was willing to give up. He couldn't give up anything that would make him anything other than 100% God. Okay, that's, that's not it, okay? And I will prove that to you because the context actually explains to us what he means. Okay, which is why I left the doot, 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 because I'm left you hanging, see? Meaning, meaning, now watch how the text answers the question, what equality is he willing to give up? Watch. He emptied himself. Okay, and, and this is where everybody gets all bent out of shape. He emptied himself. What does that mean? Well, he, he didn't. Did he give up? The liberals think he gave up his divine status, so he's not God anymore. Well, we know that's not the case. Well, maybe he gave up this. Maybe he gave up that. And, and they, oh, the context answers it. Okay? I'm going to ask you this question, and you think with me on it, okay? What did Jesus enjoy in heaven that he did not have when he was on earth? What's that? Okay, the comfort of his father. Okay. Okay, but we're trying to figure out what that means. So that's true, but it, what part of that equality? What, what, what does equality mean in that sense? We know it's not his deity. 
Expand on that. I mean, it's up there, but expand on that. Did you hear what she said? What Jesus enjoyed in heaven that he did not have on earth was his exalted position at the right hand of God. You say, his exalted position. Does that fit the context? Sure it does. Because he's humbling himself. He's condescending. He's becoming, as the text is going to tell us, a slave, a man. He he empties himself, not of his deity, not of his glory, not not of any of those things. He's giving up his exalted position with God the Father. That's what he's doing. And interestingly, we'll talk about this next week, it was fun to trace through the Gospels and find all the places where Jesus says, when I go to my Father someday, at the ascension, what's going to happen? All the texts say it. He ascended to the right hand of God. And at the ascension, he regains that position. Do you see it? He doesn't empty himself of his glory. He doesn't empty himself of his deity. He doesn't give up any of his divine attributes. What what he's emptying himself of is that exalted position in order to become a man in our place. Watch this. Um, The grammar actually answers what the emptying is. And this is where I said context is so helpful. If you could look at this in Greek. um, Sorry, I digressed to a little grammar lesson. He emptied is the main verb. Okay? And then he gives three participles or three explanatory phrases that tell us what emptied means. So we're not supposed to sit there and go, what does empty mean? Uh, Let's see, Uh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. No, the grammar answers the question because he gives three phrases that follow that explain what emptying is. Phrase number one, taking the form of of a slave. Your Bible says bond servant, but if you've heard MacArthur's message, if you've read his book, you understand it doesn't really mean bond slave, bond servant, it means slave. He empties himself, he gives up that exalted position to take the form of a slave. Okay, That's the first thing it means. Second phrase, being made in the likeness of men. Jesus took on human nature. That's what it means. He, he came to earth to take on human nature. And thirdly, he was found in appearance as a man. Do you see those three phrases? Those three phrases grammatically explain what emptied means. Are you with me on that? Flashbacks to fourth grade grammar class, anybody? Anybody? Okay, that's what it means. Being found in appearance as a man means that when Jesus became a man, it included the outward form of human nature. In other words, a human body. He, he didn't have just a human nature, like whatever makes you and I tick and we have that nature. Yeah, but he also took on a body. So he was found in appearance as a man as well, okay? So you guys with me on that? Any questions on that? Okay, what did he, what does emptied himself mean? It means he gave up his exalted position with God the Father in order to take the form of a slave, being made, uh, take on human nature, including a human body. And just in case you missed it, he did not give up his deity or any of his divine attributes, Okay, let's stay out of heresy land here today. Now, let's let's move on. It says 
being found in the appearance of a man, verse 8, watch this, he humbled himself. See, that, that, that's it. it, it it's, it's Jesus humbling himself. He's, not, he, he's condescending. Um, there's a great text, I think it's in Isaiah, that says, Though God is high and exalted, he associates with the lowly. He's exalted and he condescends. He's in a great position of authority, but he hangs out with us. You see that? That's the type of God we serve. That, 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 that is who God is. That his exalted glory and position and, and godness does not keep him from stooping down and dealing with people. Not just dealing with people, but actually becoming one. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This was, number one, the ultimate act of humility, was it not? The ultimate act of humility, the most amazing display of humility that we've ever seen in time is the Son of God dying in the place of sinners. Would you agree with me on that? There, there is no other display of humility where someone says, yes, I have this position, but I'm going to set it aside so I can go down, take on human flesh, and not just take on human flesh, to stand in the place, to live the life they should have lived, to go to the cross, to be the substitute for sinful humanity, so that by my death, sinners could be free. That's humility. Humility is not just, I don't brag as much as I used to. Humility is a fundamental willingness, in this case, to die for your enemy. Number two, it was also the ultimate humiliation. I don't know if you think of it like this, but God, hanging on a cross mostly naked, being crucified as a common criminal. God. Can you think of anything more humiliating? And finally, it was the main reason Jesus became the God-man. What on earth would motivate God to do that? Well, we learned it when we were this high. For God so loved the world. The motivation for Jesus to leave the right hand of the Father, to descend from that throne, as it were, from that exalted position, to become a man, to become a slave, to submit himself to the mistreatment, to the insults, to the beatings, and finally to crucifixion as a common criminal. The motivation of God in all of that was he loved us. And he did not want to leave you or me in our pitiful, sinful condition, even though we deserved it. It was the reason that Jesus became the God-man. The atonement, now, now, now I want you to, Think of this, okay? We, we sing this in songs. We've known this for years. But think with me about this, okay? Think. The atonement 
Now, what's atonement? Atonement is all of the work that Jesus does to reconcile us to God. His life, his death, his resurrection. Okay. The atonement required that Jesus be both a man and God. I'll put it more simply. If Jesus didn't do this, we die and go to hell. There was not another way. He had to be a man in order to take our place, right? But he had to be God in order to do it perfectly. All that stuff in the Old Testament, you know, the lamb has to be spotless and it can't be sick and it can't be diseased. What is that all about? The sacrifice has to be perfect. And the bad news is none of us is good enough to stand in that place. So God becomes a man to stand in our place. So here you go. The kenosis, the emptying, means that Jesus gave up his exalted position that he enjoyed with God the Father and God the Spirit in order to come to earth, take on human nature and flesh, assume the humble role as a slave in order to die as the substitute for sinful humanity. If you forget everything else, that's what this section is is saying. Jesus gives up his exalted position that he enjoys with God the Father and God the Spirit in order to come to earth, take on human nature and flesh, assume the humble role as a slave in order to die as the substitute for sinful humanity. And we sing with the hymn writer, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? But before you close your Bible, we've got to remember one very important thing. As we stand in awe of what God has done for us in Christ, and we should. If you're not standing in awe of what Paul just told us, <laughs> read it again, because you missed it. What's Paul's point in telling us all of that? As we stand amazed in our Savior, and we worship Him, and we praise Him, and that is that is the end result of all of this, there is one very important application. If that is what our God did for us, how should we treat one another? God had the exalted position and gave it up to become a slave to consider others as more important than himself in the ultimate way by dying in their place. (laughs) We think we have an exalted position, but it's delusion. We think that we stand in a better place. We think that we're better than our friends and others and sinners, but we're not. He actually is exalted and gave it up and humbled himself to that extent. So if we are Christians, if we are little Christs, if we are his followers, how should we treat one another? What does he say? What does he say? Yeah, and walk humbly with our God. What does he say? Have this attitude in yourselves as was also in Christ Jesus. That's the challenge. Let's pray.
Father, we can't say much more than amazing love. How can it be that thou, our God, shouldst die for thee? Um, Lord, we love you, and we stand in awe of this amazing display of who you are. That though you are high and exalted, that you associate with the lowly. Though you enjoy that position, you came as a slave to live in our place, to die in our place, also that we could have a relationship with you restored and enjoy that eternal position with you forever. Fathers, we stand in awe of who you are and, and what motivated you and what was involved in our salvation. Might we see the all-important connection that Paul wants us to see between who you are and what you've done and how we ought to treat one another. Um, Lord, might we, with Christ in our minds and with our eye on the kenosis, would you grow us, stretch us, cause us to repent this week of ways that we are exalting ourselves, walking in pride and conceit, And Father, might we humble ourselves, remembering our Savior, and treat one another as you have treated us. Lord, give us the grace to follow in your steps, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.